can try to unite ourselves with someone who doesn't fear God and think that that's going to honor God, that that is a lie and that is a pitfall in our faith that brings only danger into our lives. And that type of compromise threatens authenticity. Later on in chapter 2, he talks about those who've given up on their marriages, who didn't fight for their marriages, who chose to be faithless. And God says, I will not listen to them. If you look in chapter 2, verse 14, I'm sorry, go back to verse 13. He says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. They're begging God with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God doesn't want their sacrifice. In verse 14, but you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. We saw it again in chapter 3. That not only does ritualistic religion or unfaithful relationships compromise authenticity, but also an inadequate theology. If you recall, they questioned God. They saw that things in the world were going bad. And they said, God doesn't care. Where is the God of justice, they said, in chapter 2, verse 17. He's absent. He's not among us. And in fact, they said, God delights in evil. Their theology was whack. It was way off. They didn't understand that God is patient, even with the wicked. And if you recall, I said, if he were not patient, none of us would be here. He would have struck us down at the moment of our sin. But no, God is patient. An inadequate view of him threatens authenticity in our worship. And last week, we looked at the love of money. When we wrecked in an idol in our hearts of Money, when we worship it and we hold on to it as our central goal in life. And we don't want to give of it. And we, when we do give, we give only parts to God, for instance. And God tells the people who've chosen to make money an idol in their life, He says in chapter 3, verse 7, Return to me, and I'll return to you. Displaying that they need to repent because they failed to worship God with their finances. And week in and week out, we see these frustrating responses from the people of God. Nine times in the book of Malachi, God brings a charge to them, and then we get this phrase, but you say, and then they try and defend themselves. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, but you say, how have you loved us? When God tells them that he loves them. In chapter 1, verse 6, but you say, How have we despised your name? And it was quite obvious. In chapter 1, verse 7, But you say, How have we polluted you? Because they brought blemished offerings to the altar. In chapter 1, verse 13, But you say, What a weariness this is to actually give God what he deserves. In chapter 2, verse 14, But you say, Why does he not regard our offering? Well, it's because you've been faithless to the wife of your youth, he says. In chapter 2, 17, But you say, How have we wearied God? Because you said He delights in evil. In chapter 3, verse 7, They say, Well, how shall we return to God? Implying that they didn't need to do it. But God says, You're not giving me the full tithe. 
You're worshiping money, not me. That's how you need to return to me is by worshiping me alone and giving me the full offering. Chapter 3, verse 8. They ask, but you say, how have we robbed you? And God tells them, because all the wealth is mine and you're withholding it. And the last time we see it in verse 13 in chapter 3. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And God says, because you ask, what profit is there in following God when the wicked are the ones who seem to prosper? Week in and week out, chapter by chapter, they're on the defensive trying to justify what God has made crystal clear to them. And in my heart, I began to get very discouraged, trying to preach this and say, all right, God, where's the good part here? You know, where's, you know, just, just begging God for it. But so often, that is not the way we respond to God. We respond on the defensive. But the beauty of chapter 3, verse 16, is that things don't end that way. We looked at the things that compromise authentic worship, and today, as we look at this end of this chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see the thing that restores authentic worship. And from verses 16 through 18, we're reminded that it is a life, a walk, a lifestyle of repentance. If we want to restore authenticity in our worship of God, it starts with repentance. Would you follow with me as I read chapter 3, verses 18, uh, 16 through 18? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Praise God. The Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We see that these people respond in repentance and that this matter of humility characterizes them at this point. And I want us to look at what were the primary things that they did that resembled, that characterized a life of repentance, a life of turning away from the things that God had confronted them on. Well, right away in verse 16, we see that those who feared the Lord spoke. They chose to fear the Lord. If you recall in chapter 1, God says, If I am a master, where is my fear? And by the way that they worshipped Him with blemish, with falseness, with religiosity, they showed they had no fear of Him. But this remnant, this group of people said, We're going to fear you, Lord. And then they spoke with one another. There is a communal aspect to repentance that oftentimes we miss out on. Certainly repentance before God takes place alone or in our room, before Him on our knees, saying, God, forgive me for my sin. You showed this thing to me. You showed that thing to me. And God, I want to repent of it. But there's also a place where you speak with someone and say, look what God showed me in my life. And these 
This faithful remnant spoke with one another. And it said the Lord paid attention. And he heard them. Now on the one hand, certainly God heard them speaking to one another. But I don't think it's too much to assume that what took place when they spoke with one another was confession. It was a crying out to God. So when Malachi said that, they, that God paid attention and heard them, I think it's more than just simply they're discussing amongst themselves, but it's also their discussion with God. And God paid attention. He heard their cries. No longer did their false cries fall on deaf, deaf ears, but God receives it. And they take it a step further, and they put together a book of remembrance. Among the Persian Empire they would often put together books of remembrance that uh, accounted all the great acts, the, the deeds that were done in the empire. And these Jews were exiled in Persia for a time. But they take it a step further and don't recount any of their own deeds, but they make a list. As we see there in verse 17, what does this list make up of? It is made up, I'm sorry, end of verse 16, it says it was written before God of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. This book was made up of people who feared God. They made a list of it, of these ones who did this. And as I look at these principles here, there's definitely an underlining principle of humility, of brokenness, of recognition of their failure before God. And they led them to repentance. Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance is to leave the sin we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. It is a turning away from this. It is not repentance to say I'm sorry and go do the same thing without remorse and even with remorse. Repentance is a decision that we turn away from. Not that we become perfect. But these people put their foot down. They say, we're going to fear God. We're going to share this amongst ourselves. We're going to put it in writing because we fear God and esteem His name. And it's fascinating that it says that they will esteem His name. The word esteem is the idea that they will honor. They will regard it. If you recall in chapter 1, verse 14, God says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations because it wasn't feared among His people. Hear this remnant decide, we don't want to miss out on that. We're going to fear your name too, O Lord. Now, it may not be a book of remembrance for you and I, but what will it be that declares to everyone, as if in writing, that you are among those who fear the Lord, who come together in repentance? who esteem his name. About a week or so ago, I got an email from a dear brother here who really encouraged me. He told me how he appreciated a particular thing I said in the message. And he reminded me of a, a principle that was prominent in the Reformation that Martin Luther stood by. And it's this idea that he lives in Latin, says, Coram Deo. And in Latin, in English, that's translated before the face of God. That was something that Martin Luther recognized in his life and all the reformers did that everything they did was done corum Deo before God he saw it all 
It was done before him, it was done for him. What will that thing be? How would it be signified in your life? That book of remembrance, if you will. These people chose to let that be a marker of their repentance. In the book Seeking Him, a quote in one of the margins says, A key means to continued growth in humility and repentance is accountability combined with mutual encouragement. As we strive for repentance, strive to honor God, let it be known that we've got to do it together. We can't do this alone. Our hearts are too wayward. And I think that's why Malachi tells us that these people who feared God spoke with one another. One another. Severed worship is, with God is mended by a severed heart before God. And we see here that God responds to their repentance in verse 17. He affirms them with this statement. They shall be mine. They're going to be mine. These people are mine. And he says, In the day when they make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God calls his people his treasured possession. This is not the only time we see this in the the, the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says this, For you are a people holy to to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God calls his people his treasured possession because he chose them and said he would. But on the other hand here, we see that the Lord says, it is these people who fear me who will be my treasured possession. So on the one hand, we see that God chooses us to be his treasured possession, but on the other hand, we see that it is our responsibility to respond in fear of him and to honor him and to obey him. Exodus 19, verse 44 and 5 says something along the same lines when it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That, that last statement is interesting. He says, You're going to be my treasured possession and all of earth is mine. But amongst all of that, you are my treasure. He could have said, the stars that I put up there in the galaxies, light years away, are my treasures. He had every right to say that that's his treasure. He could have said that species of animal in the jungles that no human eye has ever seen is my treasured possession. He could refer to the gracefulness of an eagle in the sky. He said, look at that treasure of mine. Or a dolphin swimming through the waters and leaping. He could have said any of these things were his treasure, but he says, no, it is those who fear me. We are his treasure. Let that soak into you right now. 
If today you fear the Lord and honor Him, you are a treasure to the Lord of hosts. You are His treasured possession. Psalm 135 tells us to praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord. And he says at the end, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own treasured possession. Let that in itself call you to worship him. That he chose you with all of your flaws, knowing all of your failures, knowing your past with perfection. And says, you are mine. And then he says, then in verse 18, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. This is a genre called Hebrew parallelism. We see that he mentions that there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and then he goes, in, goes on and says, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. And the parallel is that the righteous serve and the wicked do not. And God says, I will draw a distinction between the two at the end of days. In chapter 4, verse 1, he continues that thought. And he shows how he's going to make this distinction. And the word that this encourages God's people with is that ultimately the righteous will triumph. If you recall in the end of chapter 3, uh, from last sermon, the people were wondering what the prophet was in serving God. If the wicked are the ones that prosper. Look at them, they're enjoying this world. They're abusing even the righteous. And in 4.1, we see that God essentially tells them, yes, perhaps, but only for a time. Because look at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be nothing left for the wicked to rebuild themselves upon. Not even a root in the ground from which a stem can arise. Because on the day of the Lord, on that final day, God will execute justice in total and make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he goes on and says, But for you, the word but is a conjunction signifying a contrast. He's, he mentioned what was the plight for the wicked, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts. If you feel discouraged today by the evils in this world, take heart. Because there will come a day when God will execute justice. Take heart in that. Why does God use this type of imagery? In those three verses... Basically, he says, he will judge the wicked and raise up the righteous. But he uses language like the oven. 
he says that they will become like stubble. He will set them ablaze. That the righteous will, the son of righteousness will come upon us. There will be healing in the wings. And we'll be going out like leaping calves. God wants to paint a, paint a picture in our minds of the certainty of what will take place. Picture a calf bound up in a box. And the sun rises, yet there's darkness in his stall alone. And that door in his stall is opened, and the light of the sun shines through, and the calf bolts out and leaps for joy that he's been free. God wants that image in our minds that we might leap for joy knowing that he will have the final word. He wants to etch that in our minds, and he uses beautiful imagery to do it. We see that this walk of repentance is a walk of humility. It's a walk of triumph, knowing that the, the righteous will be vindicated. And lastly, we see it's a walk of obedience. Verses 4 through 6. And this is fascinating. Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. His people have responded in repentance but God continues, He tells them to continue on in obedience. Our walk with God on this earth is a continual lifestyle of obedience. He says, follow the law that Moses gave you. At Horeb, which is a synonymous place with Sinai, where we get the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. But then he says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah. Now when have you seen Moses and Elijah paired up before? If you recall Matthew chapter 17, Jesus goes on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and brings Peter, James, and John with him. And suddenly Jesus begins to magnify and his glory is evident and two men appear, Moses and Elijah. Malachi calls them to keep in mind the law given by Moses and the acts done by Elijah almost as a preparation for what's going to come only a few hundred years later when Jesus arrives. He says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You recall, it was Elijah that called the people to repentance. When he said, you're going to worship Baal? Well, I'm going, to raise, I'm going to bring Yahweh. And let's see whose God wins. So on Mount Carmel, they put these altars together. And the people of Baal try to get Baal to send fire down from the heavens. And they begin to cut themselves and cry out for hour upon hour in vain. Elijah takes buckets of water, douses the altars, and says, God, show them that you alone are God. And a fire from heaven comes and consumes everything. It was Elijah who called the people of God to repentance. Here, the name of Elijah is called upon again to function as a forerunner for further repentance. And it's interesting, the Jews to this day await Elijah to come. 
because they failed to see when he did come a second time. We see in the New Testament that the gospel writers are not shy, neither is Jesus shy, to say that John the Baptist himself, not Elijah incarnate per se, but coming with the ministry of Elijah, calling God's people to repentance. And this is important. This is why Malachi ends his book in this way. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. This is the angel talking to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And in verse 17 it says, referring to John, And he will go uh, before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. I mean, right there, it says John the Baptist will function in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. And then this, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Quoting Malachi chapter 4. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Elijah called God's people to repentance. John the Baptist called God's people to repentance. But John's repentance would be followed by the Messiah who was long awaited. In Mark chapter 1, we get this very odd description of of John the Baptist. In Mark chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore leather belts around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's the description. And you think, all right, Mark, why does it matter that the guy's shirt was made out of camel's hair, that he wore a leather belt, that he ate locusts and honey? I mean, really, that's a really obscure description of a man. And frequently in the Bible, we don't get descriptions of people. But Mark is making a statement here. Because if we look at 2 Kings chapter 1, when Elijah is on the scene, chapter 1 verse 8 says that this man wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And another person responded, Oh, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Malachi tells him to anticipate the coming of Elijah. And the New Testament says, Elijah is John the Baptist. And that's fascinating because John the Baptist has asked this question. Are you Elijah? And he says, no. And then they ask Jesus, is he Elijah? He says, yes. And I had a friend in school once say, there's a contradiction in the Bible. And I was so frustrated as a high schooler because I didn't know what to say. I don't remember what I said, but I said something that appeased him and got out of my way. Cause I just... But this is what happened. John was saying, I'm not literally Elijah. Look, I'm John the Baptist. You know my dad is Zechariah. And Jesus very well knows that John the Baptist isn't Elijah. That's, that's Jesus' cousin. But Jesus is saying, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And the people cannot understand that who are questioning So, but what's the significance? Well, after John comes on the scene, Jesus does. And he will continue that ministry of repentance. And on that cross, Jesus would die on the behalf of humanity. He would take the penalty for the sins of all of us. Our ritualistic religion. Our faithlessness our inappropriate views of God, our making money an idol. Jesus would take all of the sins of humanity 
and bear them to give eternal life. And that's the message Jesus has for each and every one of us today. Would you receive him? If today you don't know that Jesus is your Savior, if you have not placed your trust in him, if you haven't laid your life down for him, would you do that today? These people responded in repentance and said, God, we want to fear you. We recognize you're worthy of worship. We don't want to worship anything else anymore. We're going to put it in stone. We're going to place it in writing. God, you are our worship. And that's the longing of your heart. And if you want to place your trust and say, Jesus, I accept that you forgave me, that you died on my behalf, would you do that today? That's the message that the New Testament takes from Malachi. But it's fascinating because in Malachi's day, Jesus hadn't come yet. And we get this decree at the end that he will turn the hearts of the fathers, referring to Elijah, to their children and the chil- hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's how the Old Testament ends. If this doesn't happen... I'm going to come and destroy the land. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, they reinsert verse 5 again at the end. Behold, I am sending Elijah. Because they didn't want it to end on such a negative tone. Why so negative, God? Why is God being so negative here? Well, He wants to prepare hearts. It serves as a warning that He is working in history And that it will come when John the Baptist comes. That his his uh, his plan of redemption of salvation will begin as John preaches repentance, and as Jesus brings about eternal life. And what serves as a warning for the Jews as they anticipated the coming of a Messiah serves as an offer of hope to you and I. God is worthy of authentic worship. Shouldn't we then be authentic worshipers? Let repentance be our lifestyle. And let it restore within us when we go astray authenticity in our worship of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh God, we've seen ourselves so much, so many times in the pages of Malachi. We've seen our rebellion, we've seen the the darkness in our hearts. And Lord, we come before you in repentance. Forgive us, God. Restore our worship with you. Oh God, if those if there are any here, God, who don't know you, who don't know the freedom there is in Jesus, would today be that day of salvation? Oh Lord, may you be pleased in the worship of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.